welcome to Weird Studies, an art and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martel. For more episodes and to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Hi, this is Phil. Today, JF and I have the very great pleasure of talking with Stuart Davis, a screenwriter, director, actor, comedian, painter, songwriter, meditator, rock star, and, we can only assume, astronaut, pirate, and president of the United States. And, no joke, he also invented a language. If you look him up on the internet, you better pack a lunch because you're going to find yourself, hours later, slipping ever further down the rabbit hole of his extraordinary, multifaceted creativity, with no end in sight. But if you only have, say, 74 minutes, go listen to his audio documentary Man Meets Mantis, which is the subject of our show today. On New Year's Eve 2010, Stuart encountered an eight-foot-tall praying mantis entity, and this kicked off a series of synchronicities and episodes of high weirdness that would not be out of place in a Philip K. Dick novel. But this is not fiction. It's not a put-on. Stuart is talking about things that actually happened to him. J.F. and I have been talking about incorporeal entities since our first full show. But in this episode, Rubber meets Experiential Road, and here we talk about them not as an idea or as figures in artistic representation, but as things in our own lives. Stuart is the rare soul fearless enough to talk openly about his own paranormal experiences. Most people are not so fearless, and for good reason, as the actual experience of incorporeal beings marks the line between what consensus metaphysics can accept from the world and what it can't. The people who can accept paranormal experiences are the people who have had them. The people who haven't wonder if the rest of us are crazy. Experiences like Stuart's are actually a lot more common than we realize, but almost everyone who has them stays in the spiritual closet, going through their days denying a part of their lives, indeed, a part of themselves. I think there's a lot of value in talking openly about weird experience, if only to open that closet door just a little wider. This episode begins, as many of them do, with a conversation in medias res, Considering the parallels between the ideas Stuart presents in Man Meets Mantis and the notion of the aesthetic universe that J.F. and I have been hashing out from the beginning of this show. From there, the conversation winds through accounts of paranormal experience, interpretations of what these weird stories mean, warnings of the perils of buying into interpretation too much, ruminations on triune symbolism, and finally, back to where we started, with art and the aesthetic cosmos. It's one of the best conversations I've ever had, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Well, I'm sure you noticed some resonances between stuff we've said on the show, particularly about 
the idea of an aesthetic universe, a universe whose fundamental nature is aesthetic. Uh, and the stuff that's in this documentary, like I was re-listening to the documentary this morning and being like, oh yeah, this is really parallel. This is really, really resonant. I think as early as our show on Crowley, you had this idea of, um, I think it was you, JF, imagining somebody finds himself in Lovecraft's universe and is questioning the universe he finds himself in. Right. Um, like, yeah, the idea was that a scientist in a Lovecraft story won't have the full picture until he realizes he's a scientist in a Lovecraft story. Mm. So he, he'll be in, the, in Antarctica and he'll put together the whole geological, archaeological picture of what's, what he's finding. But we know as readers that he doesn't have the full picture until he realizes he's a character in a story. Oh. And it's just a way of illustrating this idea that on some level, this is a deep intuition that many of us have that the fundamental cause of things is not something you can impute to some mechanical process, but it's something more like aesthetics or art. There's something artful about the universe in itself. And actually, that's something that I've on many occasions felt was resonant with you, Stuart, and not only in your music, but also in your um, something from nothing classes that you gave and mm-hmm. also and the conversations we had in Colorado. I just feel like we're all kind of kindred spirits on that point. I could not agree more and more enthusiastically. You know, the last couple of years, and JF, I think these were conversations we were having when you were in Colorado, but my cosmology has shifted and it ties in specifically to the Mantis stuff in a way. And the Mantis doc and experiences have been the tail end of the shift. But basically, my cosmology has gone to this place, which is the something from nothing underpinning. And it's just that all the one of the few things we really know about reality experientially is that something continues to emerge from nothing. This creative impulse and expression, however you want to think about it, that's like that's how this whole thing started as far back as we can trace it. That's what's going on moment to moment. And the deeper that I got into the baffling paranormal stuff that we're going to talk about, the more an artistic or creative cosmology was the only way that I could feel that I wasn't crazy, that I wasn't losing my mind at many points. And strange for me had to have taken time to get there because I've been an artist. It's the only job I've ever had since I was 21. But, you know, you, you go through all of these uh, natural inclinations. You, you just think like, well, how does this look scientifically? You know, what are the different methodologies that I should look at? I, I've read hundreds of books. I've talked to all these theorists. And at the end of the day, I came back home to art and thought theater, spectacle, artistic creation is probably the most sensible way for me to feel and experience and try to make a little bit of meaning from what's gone on. So that's a long answer to just say I couldn't agree more with that view of things. Well, let's talk about the Mantis experience. Let's First of all, let's do a little preamble, talk about your history with the paranormal. Because, I mean, I think you were definitely a practicing Buddhist before the Mantis experiences started, correct? Yeah, correct. So yeah. I got into Zen probably, I think it was age 23 or 24. And that didn't necessarily trigger paranormal experiences. I was meditating for a long time. And, you know, even into in the 90s, I met John Mack, 
which hmm, I met him under artistic connections because of my music and just that way. And then we became friends. And through John, he started taking me to these events. He would take me to seminars or, or conferences where he was speaking. And because of that, and I just found it fascinating. I wasn't having any experiences or anything. I didn't have some inexplicable event or trauma, but I just was friends with him and he kind of took me around and I went to these conferences and I started meeting these abductees and experiencers in their words. And I found it really fascinating. This was sort of the first entry point for me where things didn't add up because Whatever I thought the abduction phenomenon was or the experiencer phenomenon was or UFOs didn't jive with the people that I was sitting down with. These people were sane. They were trash collectors, uh, academics, scientists, artists, anything you could think of, any part of the world. And I just couldn't resolve the fact that I felt them to be telling me the truth. Their experience to me felt true. But... I felt the the explanations didn't accord with what my brain was trying to jive. So I got into the world through him and became fascinated, read a bunch of books. But as for me, like I didn't have any experiences. I mean, other than meditative, I've had strange experiences in meditation where my body dissolved and things like that. But I would put those in a different category than the paranormal stuff that happened around the mantis. So Not until 2010 did something truly strange happen to me, and that was this Mantis experience, which is in the audio doc and was less than a minute long, but it happened at about 12 midnight on 2010, New Year's Eve. And you know what? We did put the audio doc up ahead of time so that people can go and listen to that, and maybe it'll free us up to go off on some tangents and explore some other areas, knowing that they have that as a resource. But in a nutshell, on New Year's Eve, I had a high fever. I was not taking any medications. I was home alone. And because of my history with fevers when I was a kid, I had an inspiration to do a meditation and to ask the fever a question. And so as midnight approached, I thought this would be a really cool way to bring in the new year. I'm going to do this this, uh, question of a fever. And I I did it and said, I'd like to meet my guides. Please show me my guides. And then this this massive eight-foot-tall praying mantis entity manifest in my room over my bed, wearing a purple robe. It immediately shot some kind of signal into my body, which was invisible but had a definite energetic palpable quality to it. It was not painful. To me, it felt like signal that something was being transmitted or conveyed in this signal. It was arresting. I don't know if I was paralyzed, but I definitely was arrested either in captivated awe or perhaps something to do with the signal. But the whole thing was over in less than a minute. And then there was a phrase in my head left in English, which was remember who you work for, which was the only verbal component. (laughs) And then the the thing vanished. And that was that. Right. Well, now, I can imagine many of our listeners would be thinking stuff like, well, okay, so you had a high fever, you hallucinated. But really, the, the mantis encounter is just the beginning. And I would strongly urge listeners to go and listen to the full audio doc. Maybe you can give us just a precy of the synchronicities and the physical manifestations that followed from this 
original experience because those are what really cement the original experience and make it a real event that uh, we should all be paying attention to when it comes to knowing who Stuart Davis is and what your story is all about. Definitely. I agree. So let me try to give you like the few minute truncated version of that. And that's how my read was initially as well. The next day I told my wife about it. I said, this is the craziest thing that's ever. But I I did personally feel like, well, yeah, I had a fever. I guess that was some kind of perturbance in a fever state that I'm not aware of. But then we move forward to the end of 2013. I'm living in uh, Amsterdam. And I haven't really thought about the experience. It's certainly never faded from my consciousness, but I just kind of tucked it in a, huh, that was really weird drawer. And then in 2013, I'm in Amsterdam, and I meet this artist, Jasmine Karamova. She's a 16-year-old singer-songwriter. My wife introduces me to her. My wife is saying, you should sign her to your record label. And when I meet her, it's like I'm looking at her face... And in my head is rolling this film from beginning to end. I mean, mostly completely cooked. I would say maybe 70% cooked. And it's her. It's so vividly, particularly, specifically her in this film. And the film begins with her picking up a mantis insect. And that being this precipitating event that sends her off on a paranormal odyssey in the film... But of course, I've just met this person. I'm not going to say, hey. And also, while I'm having that experience, it's totally somatically clear to me that somehow this film I'm seeing is related to what was shot into my body on New Year's Eve from that entity, which also spooks me and kind of disorients me. So I, again, I'm just like, I'm not going to talk about this. I'm going to go off. And I, I wrote a treatment, kind of an outline for it. I never told Jasmine about it until years later. You know, also, it's a film about sex trafficking from a paranormal lens. I just, and it's in Russian. I just, it's so, it's ridiculous and unmakeable. What a weird thing. So I, I kind of tuck that away. And then nothing else happens until three years later, I'm back in the United States and it's 2016. And I'm on the grass in the dog park with my dog in front of my house on my back looking at the sky waiting for my dog to go to the bathroom and there's nothing in the sky no stars it's not yet at a point in the night when there's visuals and this white orb the size of one of my fingernails held at arm arm's length moves across the sky in a perfect horizontal line and comes to a stop and immediately when it stops, I am obviously very, very interested. Keep watching it. It goes straight up vertically. And then it begins to make a succession of right angles, just violating the basic things you see in the sky. It's just a a white sphere, but it's making right angles. It's stopping. It's going vertical, then right. And they're perfect right angles. And that's Maybe now the craziest thing I've ever seen. Whatever the fuck this thing is, I've never seen something do anything like that in the sky. And so then I start looking around for someone in the neighborhood, trying to get someone to come and watch. There's no one else out there. I'm alone. This goes on for 10, 15 minutes, whatever. and, And I think I really need someone else to see this. So I rush in the house. I get my oldest daughter. We go upstairs on the deck. I just simply want to confirm, am I crazy? She starts watching it as well. She sees the same thing. It continues in the 
craziness pattern. Then I go down, I get my wife. She comes up. I start filming it. I start recording us. Actually, I think I was recording from the moment I got my daughter up there. And my wife sees the same thing. And this goes on so long that we actually get bored. It's like 1130 or 12. (laughs) And we just go to bed. We watch this thing for like 90 minutes. And the other great hilarious thing about the ufo sighting was that if you were looking at it with your naked eye it was a sphere a single point sphere but if you looked through this documentary film lens that i I had a camera because i was making a doc about my family and through the lens of the camera you could see it was actually a triangle it was a series of three lights and those three lights shaped into sometimes a horizontal plane and sometimes a triangle so it was also doing that but ultimately you know what do you do with that? So we went to bed and that was the point where I was like, that really felt like something was signaling me. But again, just a feeling. So go forward to this script being sold, the Mantis script. I find a producer in Hollywood and she hears the short pitch of this script and buys it. I think it's so, such a, crazy thing for her to buy it that I actually try to talk her out of it. There's kind of like (laughs) the reverse of a negotiation where I'm telling her like, this is probably the worst (laughs) most (laughs) difficult, worst thing you could buy. And she's like, I'm buying it. I don't care. It's done. So she buys that. It's it's so I've read the script and I was I have to say I was so impressed. It's a beautiful screenplay. So I'm not surprised that she wanted to buy it. Although there are certain aspects of it that would make it a hard sell for a a sane producer in Hollywood. That's for sure. Yes. Like, but like all the aspects. Yeah. (laughs) So she buys it. And that means I get to write it because I had basically sold her the pitch. So I write the script. And then as I'm writing the script, that is when these insect synchronicities begin, beginning with me being again at a different dog park. I'm on the phone and I'm talking with someone about the film on the phone and I just am complaining into my phone saying, oh my God, this process is so slow. It's taking so long. Is this thing ever going to get made? You know, it's ridiculous. And as I'm saying those words, a praying mantis insect flies up and lands on my left foot. And I have never seen one. (laughs) I've never seen an insect in the wild in my life of the mantis orders. And so I hang up, I start taking pictures And as I'm taking little close-ups of this insect, I mean, I'm like five inches from its face taking photos of it, and it's looking at me, and I I am electrified by the feeling that this is not a coincidence, that something intelligent is looking at me from those eyes, or that this has been orchestrated. That precipitating insect synchronicity becomes a super-synchronicity. People get hired to work on the film, various producers, people working on the finance end, um, a line producer. There's a dozen instances, uh, and they're all in the dock, or at least a huge chunk of the voices themselves are in the dock. I didn't even have time to relate them all, but people get hired to work on the film, and the next day, a mantis insect shows up on their front doorstep, shows up on their doormat, lands on their laptop. Uh, Just crazy series of a dozen or more of these unmistakable you know the other thing to point out is like at this point there's only about 20 people working on the film and a dozen of them the day of or the day after they begin working on the film physically have a mantis insect show up on their person so that goes on for 
about a, a stretch of a year or more of those. The, the single film turns into a trilogy. Siona, the producer, ends up buying three of these films. They propagate like a, a amplification loop or something. The thing keeps building on itself. I still think it's crazy that even one has been put into pre-production. But when I go into the second and third films writing-wise, it leads to a series of nocturnal anomalies. And this is where it gets really weird and personal for me. I start being woken up between 3 and 3.33 in the morning. Those numbers, I don't know what they mean, but it is either, it's like 3.03 or 3.33 or 3.13. And I'm woken up by a levitating tuning fork hovering over my house, which is sounding in reverse. And these experiences all begin, I wake up and I hear coyotes going crazy, just nuts like they've found a kill and then they stop on a dime and then the tuning fork in reverse starts sounding over my house the experience proceeds and then it concludes again when it's done with the coyotes going crazy like bookends this happens several times in several different forms my wife experiences it with me which is another reason i wanted to make the doc is just to get everyone's experience in their words. I didn't want to tell my wife's experience of it. So there's a series of these nocturnal anomalies. I decide I need to engage it. I, every time it happens, I'm paralyzed with fear. I'm unable to like leave my house. I just keep thinking I should go out on my rooftop deck. I should encounter this. I should have an interaction with it. And I'm just seized with fear. I, I inexplicably cannot bring myself to go outside, even though nothing Nothing ominous necessarily is happening other than how weird it is. So there's a series of those, and they kind of culminate with me finally getting up the balls to go out on my deck between 3 and 3.30 in the morning and and meditate, trying to call in this mantis, trying to call back the UFO, trying to call in these nocturnal auditory anomalies. Nothing will happen as long as I'm on the deck. If I'm on the deck consciously meditating, trying to, to consciously interact with this thing, nothing happens. But if I go to bed and give up, the events begin again. And uh, they start up once I do that. My wife experiences them with me. She has a very hilarious take on this, which we can kind of circle back to later. And yeah. these nocturnal anomalies lead to my producer, Siona, who bought the film. She has a dream uh, which really spooks me. She dreams that I have a implant in my right shoulder and that it is alien in origin. And she tells me all of this. And I do have and have always had since I was a teenager a lump the size of a BB in my right shoulder, precisely where she had the dream. And it has always bothered me, just a background unease and wondering you know i touch it all the time and think or actually i just feel like when i touch it i feel like i don't know this this thing doesn't feel right somehow she tells me that dream Mm. i show her the picture it's visible in my shoulder and so that is another little disturbing thing that leads me to feel like i really want to somehow investigate this i want to try to do an inquiry with some help. I feel like I need help. I feel like I'm maybe going crazy. I, I've, I'm worried about my mental, emotional stability and all this. So I finally tracked down after quite a bit of work. I find a Buddhist shaman who is 30-year practitioner, both in 
lineages that I've practiced in, but also in more traditional shamanic enterprises. And so we do a preface work with me where she tries to determine that this thing is actually what it's presenting itself to be and that we're not dealing with a masquerade or a real malevolent deception of some kind, like a negative entity. She feels satisfied that this thing is at least pretty much what it says it is. Then she tells me that I should channel it and that the message she's getting from her guides is that it's important for me to be the channel, that I'm going to be the connect point for this and not her, which I really... I re- <laughs> really? <laughs> I don't... I can't communicate how unexcited and yucky... I, I don't know, just like sh- channeling to me is... <laughs> It's embarrassing. I have disparaged and mocked channeling at many points in my life, but I feel like I have no good other options and I'm more curious than I am derisive of this this undertaking. So we do it. I make a list. Or as, as you say in the documentary, fuck it. Let's channel a mantis. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's really what it came down to. I was like, what else are you going to just You don't got something else on the menu. So we do yeah. it. And I make a list of questions. It's actually quite a long list. In the doc, I go through 10 of them. But in reality, it was 20 plus questions. And they're all the ones you might imagine. Are you negative? Will you leave me alone if I want you to leave me alone? What is this all about? What's the connection between you and the insects? And we do this channeling. And The interesting thing for me, physically, emotionally, about the channeling experience was that as soon as I dropped into what she described as the channeling state, a strobe light began to flicker behind my eyelids and my eyes began to water profusely. And it continued through the duration. It was kind of like looking at the sun, staring at the sun, if there was a strobe light in there. Again, no idea how to interpret that or what it is. It was just the somatic coordinate in this undertaking. So we do that. I get quote unquote answers to my most important questions. And then I find out that a friend of mine had a mantis encounter about 200 miles from my house decades ago. A good friend of mine that I'd known for 15 plus years. And then where I'll stop with this story, which I kind of feel is a crescendo point for me, is I'm online one day and I'm watching various videos of UFO conferences and uh, I'm doing a mantis search. So I'm looking for people who've had mantis experiences and just doing a real crude uh, gathering of info. And I find this woman speaking at the 2016 UFO conference. Her name is Jacqueline Smith. And she is recounting being visited by mantis entities on New Year's Eve, which stops me in my tracks I take it to my wife. I play the video for her. I'm like, this woman is saying she's been visited by mantis entities on New Year's Eve. And at that point, my wife, it's like her mask and sense of humor kind of cracks. And she turns to me. This is not in the doc. And she just turned to me and said, please don't contact her. Please just let it go. Like, (laughs) please, can we just, it spooked her. Yeah. And that's, that's where I'll leave off.
can I actually ask, um, pick up on a minor detail? What do you make of the prevalence of threes? The number three, like you're talking about how these nocturnal experiences where you would hear like a backwards tuning fork sound, you would hear this at times with the number three prominently displayed. Do you make anything of that? I do. The first three nocturnal anomaly events happened, and I was journaling all of this in great detail from way before even the nocturnal anomalies, but the first one occurred at 3.33. And by 3.33, I mean, when I woke up, my phone is one foot from my head and I touch it. It says 3.33 in the morning. The second one happened at 3.13 and the third one happened at 3.03. Hmm. So one thing that I've heard you speak about previously, which really resonates for me, is inside of musical intelligence, inside of musical sensibility, the a 3-4 patterning, you know, the triplet patterning or just a 3-4 time signature, uh, and you discussed this in the Kubrick episode, right. has, has this nature of spiraling. Of, mm-hmm. of a kind of drilling, of a kind of, there's a very particular quality to a triplet or a three, four time signature. And yeah. I feel like something about those threes is a contact point for my musical wiring. I just feel like it was, right. uh, but I don't know yeah. much about it beyond the mid- that. Mid- the medievals called triplet divisions of temporal units perfections. Right. And so duple divisions they would call imperfectus. Yes. Uh, and, right. and I'm only mentioning this because uh, this is a minor and dependent synchronicity that I'm just experiencing right now. A few days ago, I had a dream, which I'm not going to go into the details, but it was a very significant dream. And you know how in dreams you can't, for the most part, clearly visualize numbers and letters, or at least pretty unusual. I don't know if you've ever seen the film Waking Life, but that's actually a plot point. How do you know you're in a dream? Look at a digital clock face and try to make the numbers out, and you can't. And in this dream, I had a ticket. I was in a theater, and the ticket had a series of, you know, like row three, seat three, a number of threes clearly prominently displayed, and I could read them really clearly. And I woke up and I took a note of that. I was like, that's odd. And I was, t- I was talking to my therapist about this a few days ago. And he's like, well, what do you think threes mean? We had this whole conversation about perfections and so on. Right. And here we are talking about threes again. Yeah, I've had some uh, three synchronicities as well. I can't recall them all now, but I had a series of very, very, very intense synchronistic phenomena when I was in my early 20s. And the number three was the dominant kind of figure that recurred. As a um, pagan slash occultist Catholic, I can't help but think of the concept of Trinity when I think about this stuff, especially when you're discussing the the UFO, which looked like a single thing with a naked eye, but then through the filter of media appeared as a three. I was immediately reminded of the very complex and convoluted machinations of the early church fathers when they're trying to figure out how the Son, the Holy Spirit, and the Father all fit into one thing. It's really actually interesting to read some of this stuff, some of this ancient theology, because they were trying to come up with a very novel concept. 
are trying to think alchemically in a very interesting way. And it, in fact, it's at that moment in history that the concept of a person arises. The concept of a persona arises first not to describe people, but to describe this divine uh, unity that is the one and the many at once. So this is pretty philosophical stuff, but that's what comes to my mind when I think of the symbology of three and how it relates to to one. I have I have one more log to throw on this particular fire as well. There's a book called The Good, the Bad, and the Funny by Ramsey Dukes, a.k.a. Lionel Snell, who we've interviewed on this show. And his ideas, making what is by now a pretty commonplace or obvious point that human logic tends to be binary. And in this book, he is trying to think of uh, triune logic instead of binary logic. And it's related to, I think, his reading of Austin Osmond's Spare. You know, you have a fundamental sort of binary division. You can be for something mm. or you can be against something. Um, you can be right wing or you can be left wing, but you have two points and all of the available cognitive space is arrayed on a continuum of a line that runs between two points. And, you know, Lionel's work is all aimed at earning a few extra degrees of cognitive freedom. And so the point of triune logic, you posit a third point outside of this axis running between A and B. You posit a point C, and all of a sudden we're moving from two dimensions to three. All of a sudden we have something that transcends a simple dualism or a simple binary. It is the opening up of an entire new dimension of intellectual, of cognitive space. Right, right. That's interesting. Oh one question God. one question for you, Stuart. I'm always interested when I listen to the corpus of a, a musician's work to find out those rare occasional time signatures that musicians might work in, like songwriters. Like I've always been fascinated by Radiohead's obsession with 5-4, which is mm -hmm. a time signature ah. I really enjoy. So do you have any songs in 3-4? Interestingly, I do, but the ones that come up for me in relation to this discussion are in 6-8. Um, oh, there's, yeah. Yeah, there's been some really important songs for me in 6-8. But I have to also share that everything you just reflected conjured this distinct uh, item that I want to share that I do now feel like you just gave me a bit of an insight about the threes. So... That's where I was going to go. I wanted to talk about the Trinity. Of course, in Buddhism, you got Buddha, Dharma, right. Sangha. There's, That's right. I feel like the, all of that stuff is truly contacting this somewhere. But interestingly, when I went into writing the third film in this trilogy, hmm. I knew going into it that I wanted the entire first act of the film to take place from the perspective of one of these mantis entities. No dialogue, nothing but the first-person subjective experience of a mantis entity in its native environment, which obviously I know nothing about. It's completely fabricated from the ground of the void. So I began to ask this question, and I know you guys are familiar with this as an artistic exercise. This is not channeling, but when I'm writing, I like to have conversations with the characters, including going inside of their first-person experience. And oh, yeah. there's just this, yeah, it's a dialectic. And so when I knew I wanted to write the first act of the third film in the trilogy from the first-person perspective of the Mantis, I just began to ask creatively, what do I do to begin to understand what the first person perspective of this entity might be. 
And so in these meditation sessions, asking that question, the first thing that came clearly was the way that human consciousness is trisected into waking, dreaming, and deep dreamless sleep is gone. So if the first step Mm. to understanding a mantis consciousness is that the gross or waking awareness and the subtle or dreaming awareness and the deep causal, deep dreamless sleep awareness are all fully integrated into one coherent experience for them. Mm. And Mm. that's what their reality is. And so that's the threes that immediately came back. Yeah. Also interesting to note that the this is a superficial thing, but it it's telling. I think that the mantis, the praying mantis's head is triangular. Oh god! So yeah. even even in the if you were to to make a little stick figure of a praying mantis, its head would be a perfect triangle. So that's, <laughs> that's interesting. True. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I I'll tell you that Siona's icon, her logo for her company, is exactly what you just described. And she made Mm. that logo before she bought this film. And she made that logo because it corresponded to the molecular structure of one of her favorite atomic structures. She has a company called 5-HT2A, which you might know more about that compound than I do, but I guess it has something to do with the entheogenic properties of the brain. So she made this little icon. And then later when she bought Mantis, I was like, you already have the logo for this movie for this mantis head and she was like no that's for 5-HT2A and I was like well, that that's a mantis <laughs> head yeah it was weird <laughs> so let's let's talk about the the mantis entity I like to speculate although I know that no speculation will ever reach some kind of final conclusion with regards to the nature of these things but Phil and I have often discussed the alien phenomenon UFOs that sort of thing but we we always tend to reframe it in terms of older traditions of fair folk, fairies, uh, you know, the little people, that sort of thing. For sure, if you look at the folklore concerning fairies and that sort of thing, that there's something kind of insectoid about fairies often. In fact, just a few years ago, some dude in uh, England purportedly photographed fairies. He, he saw these little bugs, he took pictures of them, and then when he blew them up, they looked like little people with wings. So... Again, it's a reassertion of this idea that there's something insect-like about these other entities that aren't necessarily interplanetary, but more like interdimensional, but connected to the Earth kind of thing. What's your take on the nature of the mantis entities? Do you believe that they're aliens from another planet, or do you believe that they're uh, somehow involved in the story of spaceship Earth on some deep level? Uh, Fair question. I first I would say that I question profoundly my capacity to ascertain anything truly fundamental about these entities. I get right um, when I ask this question to my own higher self, or you know, in meditation, the image that came back for me was that the distance in consciousness between me and a mantis insect is it corresponds to the distance between me and one of these mantis entities that visited me. So other thing that came with that image was that, you know, you still love an insect. I've held mantis insects since this. I We had to buy them when we were shooting the trailer and we had a bunch of them in my house and you love them. I mean, they look at you intelligently. And when I, my family bonded with these little insects, we cared about them. And so carried with the image of the distance between the insect to me and me to the mantis entity, 
the feeling was they still care. They they don't have this, you're just a little insignificant piece of shit quality, you know. <laughs> for them to, for it, the one that visited me at least, to show up and make the connection, it's like there's some meaning there. So They're not uh, Cthulhu. Yeah, right. I mean, <laughs> you know, the the other thing that, well, let me answer the question first, which is my current loosely held interpretation is that probably these entities have their own distinct ontological status. They they are real, but they probably inhabit a reality in a dimensional fold that I can't even conceive of, that I don't have access to. But So whatever my reality is, is included in theirs, but theirs is certainly not included in mine. And there's, I don't think they're from another planet. My feeling is that another thing when I began to inquire and beyond them having the um, non-trifurcated dream waking states, etc., was that they just don't experience time the way that we do. It's not a yeah. uh, experientially sequential this way forward. That was the past. Like, So my sense is that they're probably some kind of ontologically real entities and that I can't understand even what they are. I might be like a tiny node. I get the feeling that Whatever my art is to them, it's like I might be one note from one instrument in a symphony of something that they're involved in that's of a time span I can't comprehend. But it's I definitely want to remain in the not knowing also. I just feel like yeah, the more that I try to collapse into an interpretation, the less that I have of them. And the more that I stay in just not knowing, the Zen approach to just not knowing and remaining living as a question, that's where I feel that a relationship can live with them. So I'm hesitant to even make interpretations, but right. boy, do you get interpretations from people. I mean, like yeah. once I went public with this, of course I got dozens of people write you and they're like, I've had Mantis experiences and here's exactly what it is. And yeah. not, none of that lands well for me, but I would love to hear your both of your takes on this i i'm truly hungry for your minds if i can jump in to pivot off of a word you just invoked a second ago zen my own experience my whole kind of introduction to the weird world came through meditation as you know you have odd experiences on the cushion and i started encountering entities and I didn't know what to make of this. And at one point I asked my teacher about this. And my teacher was like, well, you know, we just tend to ignore them because like they're suffering beings like us, you know, maybe not like us exactly, but they don't necessarily compel particular attention or notice because the only thing that compels attention and notice is the fundamental point, the, the, the one thing, uh, which I'm not going to characterize, but like, I suppose I would say I didn't entirely, I wasn't a good Buddhist. I didn't entirely listen to that advice. I started paying attention to these things. Something that I think is often assumed about magical practice, for example, is that it is all about this exotic shit with robes and words of barbarous conjuration and guttering candles in skulls and shit like that but it can be as boring and undramatic as simply sitting on a cushion 
and seeing what's up in inner dimensions. I was very much struck by how this whole experience started off for you having a fever and being like, what would it be like to meditate while having a fever? I kind of responded to that because I was like, man, that sounds like exactly the kind of thing I would do. I, I totally agree with you, Stuart, about the importance of, and I guess that that's what Phil Sensei was saying in the end, is that if your interest is enlightenment, then don't pay attention to them. If you do pay attention to them, at least don't try to know exactly what they are. Or try to like grok them fully. I agree with that sentiment that you both expressed. I think it's important to maintain what Keats called negative capability, this ability to live in unknowing. So for me, the use of speculating about the fundamental or ontological nature of something, it's more of an aesthetic exercise to dig in and see more correspondences than it is a way of trying to figure out scientifically what something is. Like one of the things that really resonated when I listened to your audio podcast were, well, those parallels from my life, things that I've lived that are similar. Like I had a UFO experience when I was 13. We were on a Greyhound bus coming back from a, it was an exchange program. Like the whole class went to New Brunswick. I live, I was living in Ottawa. So it's a long bus ride and we're just coming home and I was looking out the window and I was I was literally looking for UFOs. I know that doesn't make it sound <laughs> credible, but as a kid I was constantly constantly looking at the sky hoping to see one. And I'm looking out the window of the bus and I see this this huge orange and green light up in the sky and it's just hovering above the tree line and it's so real so present that it's actually illuminating the underside of the clouds because the sky was overcast and at first I thought it was a reflection on the glass so I pressed my face up against the glass and kind of cupped my eyes to, to see and then sure enough it was there and then this other kid beside me is like are you seeing what I'm seeing and the whole bus is looking at this freaking thing as it's just hovering on the horizon I remember that I was trying to get my teacher this guy Gary he was a cool guy but he, in this moment, he was he refused to look. This was interesting. Oh, he refused wow. to even look. The all we were about twelve kids just looking up at this thing, and he would not look through the window. And at some point, the thing just shot up right through the clouds and disappeared. So obviously, this really kind of shaped me. So I pay a lot of attention when I hear about UFO encounters. But of course, for years and years, I just went with the the standard narrative, the nuts and bolts theory, so-called, where I thought these were aliens from another planet. And it was only when I got interested in in psychedelics and in the work of people like Patrick Harper and um, the guy who wrote Mothman Prophecies, can't remember his name. John Keel. John Keel. And also uh, John Mack, who you mentioned earlier. He was from Harvard, wasn't he? Yeah. So John Mack was a researcher in Harvard who was, really took the abductee phenomenon seriously. One of the first real academics to give its official sanction as a field of inquiry and one of the last as well, I guess. Um, but to undo that nuts and bolts kind of instinct that these are aliens from outer space and to open up a space where these are not so much things you're just seeing, but things you're seeing because that there's a reason why you're encountering these things, that they have mm. something to do with you. That comes ver through very clearly in your, in your story, Stuart. These so-called UFO encounters are somehow part of this aesthetic symphony that involves meaning and becoming and transformation. And it has to do with us personally. I really believe that to be the case now. I think that there's something so transformative about these types of experiences that you can't just, it's almost a 
doing them a disservice to treat them like another kind of physical phenomenon that needs to be investigated in order to be identified and tagged and, and filed away somewhere. They're much more intimately involved with us than that. Oh, man, I love both of those summaries so much. I I completely concord with all of that. And maybe it's an actual developmental trajectory if we were to assess people's relationship to the various phenomena and how it begins to impact their worldview. I went through the same arc where it was like, yeah, these are UFOs and it's a nuts and bolts thing and they're coming from other planets. And then I migrated from... John Mack to Jacques Vallée and other more nuanced writers and started to feel like, oh, this is a whole other, we have no idea. And where I'm sitting with it now is in a kind of celebration of what you just described, which is to say that I think there's an invitation. I think that we can't begin to comprehend or imagine how expansive and enigmatic consciousness itself is. And I think consciousness is fundamental to whatever this is. And the developmental invitation is forfeited every time we try to compress this or collapse it into something sensible and digestible. It just kills right. it. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I didn't want to give the impression that I was like simply initialing this kind of orthodox idea of like, oh, well, the various entities that you encounter are necessarily going to be unworthy of our time and attention. Uh, and I'm not sure I want to actually put this on the show because, I don't know, I haven't talked about this publicly at all, but I have my own version of your mantis experience, something very similar in the sense of like, I've encountered all kinds of weird beasties, and a lot of them are bad, mm -hmm. and a lot of them are liars. Yes, and a lot of them will come and tell you all kinds of shit. They said it was helpful and wanted to help humanity and shit. And it's almost like you have to develop a kind of um, occult caller ID. Yes. <laughs> but a lot of it is sort of like, it's sort of like you're hanging out in a nightclub or some kind of slightly seedy part of town. You meet all kinds of colorful characters. How do you know which ones are friendly and which ones want to rob you? Right. You know, you have to use your intuition. You have to trust your gut. You have to be very observant. The spiritual life often resembles like a film noir as much as anything else, where you're in a state of sort of heightened paranoia. It's interesting how some of the people we've mentioned, Jacques Vallée and John Keel, the more attuned they become to the really paradoxical elements of these phenomena, the more... Uh, paranoid their own writing becomes mm -hmm. how they're they're constantly wary of being gaslighted and there are some pieces of writing out there on these subjects that basically proceed from the assumption that there is no benign or positive element to these phenomena at all that it's all gaslighting there's a fascinating annotation in jeff kripal's authors of the impossible it's a really good book Mm -hmm. um, a book that otherwise I'd never heard of before by a guy named Salvatore Fischiedo, a dissident Jesuit priest. The book is called Visionaries, Mystics, and Contactees, and Kripal writes of it in his annotated bibliography that the book ends, quote, with the striking and strikingly Gnostic conclusion that the history of religions is a long series of false prophets, pseudo-enlightenments, and man-made scriptures controlled by occult forces that pose as divine but are no such thing. And this is Frechetto's own writing. Quote, we now realize that whoever dictates the messages, whoever gives the demiurge his power, 
whoever breaks the natural laws is not God, but energy entities, intelligent and evolved to a greater or lesser degree, who interfere with human lives. They have appeared and demanded to be worshipped as God, but they are not God. None of them is the creator God, the first cause of the universe. And I'm reading this and I'm like, yeah, I kind of, I, that's an interesting point of view, but I don't know if I quite buy into the paranoia simply because I've had my own experiences with, as I say, some nasty beasties, but also with one entity in particular, not going to go into details because it's, you know, this isn't about me, but like that has heavily influenced my life and creative work. I mean, this is another thing that I really respond to in your own story is the sense in which like, what do these particular entities want from us? Not all entities, just the entities we're talking about. Aesthetic expression, <laughs> you know, it's hmm. it, it almost seems as if like, you know, in our Garmin Bosia episode, we're talking about these sort of interdimensional demons in the Twin Peaks mythos. What do they want? What do they want to feed on? They want to feed on our fear and our hatred. You know, they want Garmin Bosia. And right. this mantis entity that you're dealing with, what is it feeding on? It's art. It's feeding on stories. <laughs> it's feeding on expression. And that's an entity I can get behind. Oh, this is so fascinating. I mean, first of all, I want to make a plea that if you're willing to continue the conversation outside the podcast, I would just be so eager to hear everything you'd be willing to share in private about your experiences because oh, yeah, happy to do so. My life story is so parallel to what you're describing. As you know, as a Zen practitioner, I must have had a half a dozen teachers tell me something crazy happens and they're just like bring your attention back to your breath like you're right you know, exactly and which i get and i'm not disputing the efficacy of that practice and the value of following it through but i was not a good buddhist i am not a good buddhist i have not followed that imperative as i could have in practice and i've explored and that's why we're talking now the points that you bring up around the deception, manipulation, the masquerade that occurs with entities, whether it's in the pantheon of quote-unquote alien ones or the fey folk, etc., I think that's so important. And it's one of the things that has most characterized my slowly developing experiences. Not only checking with the first shaman, but this is also not in the audio doc, I've gone to two other shamans to basically check three times from three different sources that this thing is what it says it is, because I have seen so much deception and manipulation and delusion from people yep. thinking they're entering off onto some space odyssey with the benevolent ambassadors from whereversville and it's complete bullshit and it's bullshit yeah. that ruins lives people yeah. are seduced by these stories understandably but nonetheless i think it's really dangerous and i think that a massive portion of whatever this population is that we're discussing from whatever realm a massive portion of it is deception manipulation and an agenda that we can't scrutinize and we become a component in unknowingly and it just renders lives undone. I mean, take just the most basic one-on-one level, the grays, you know, and I'm not going to yeah. say what the yeah. reality status of the grays is, but I just feel like as a person, let's have one set of rules. It's not okay for me to go into your house and take your kid and mutilate them and 
fucking swipe their memory clean yeah. and like who who are we kidding yeah. who are these people that think these are some sort of emissaries from a benevolent future for us they <laughs> they're absolutely sadistic it's twisted yeah. beyond belief and i feel so sad for the people who think that that kind of traumatic invasive abuse could ever masquerade as an ally it's tragic and so hurtful so that's i couldn't yeah. agree more that the checking and rechecking and suspicion and sometimes even maybe a touch of paranoia is understandable. I understand how Jacques Vallée has gotten to this point in his life where he's like, you know what, I'm leaving this field again because it's just, it's so much noise and confusion. And I think that when I look back on the public's relationship to the alien abduction slash UFO, it's like I see a little incremental increase in our subtlety and our capacity to ask these questions. I think these discussions are super helpful in that regard. But even in my experience, that's my own. I'm only slowly beginning to moderately, contingently trust this one mantis entity. I don't know if they're all like this. I agree with you that this mantis is feeding off of or it is reverberating with creativity and story and art. And I love that. And I'm on board with that. But it's contingent. Like, I don't know enough about this entity and probably never will to make any assessment that its agenda or worldview has anything to do with a human beings. I, I don't know if that's the case at all. talking about all this stuff and i i'm thinking about not how this comes off but what this implies okay the fact that we're entertaining these possibilities as real possibilities in itself is a, a huge seismic kind of thing like the world we're living in may be very different from what we've been told is the case right like mm. we may be living in a world filled with these entities this is something that we've talked a lot about on on the podcast but now we're really talking about ourselves and our own experience, mainly stewards, obviously. But we're talking about what happens to you as a person when you are confronted with the existence of such things. Even just the possibility of such things is enough to kind of bowl you over, really. So how have you, Stuart, been fitting this in to not only just your world picture, but your life? How have you been working with it without succumbing to the pitfalls psychological or otherwise of this sort of thing that other people have fallen in like how are you managing it all that's a really good question i think off the top knowing people that you can have conversations like this with helps inoculate you from going too far off into crazy town or, or delusion or, or having your mind shatter into a prismatic distortion so i think it's relationships i really feel lucky i'm married to a woman who 
simultaneously is able to not dismiss any of this. She grants it. She experiences it with me. She knows it's real, but she doesn't give it the time of day. She's not interested <laughs> in making her life about this. She's super grounded. That has helped insulate me, I think, from me going too far. And I think that practices, you know, if as practitioners, whether it's meditation or the study of paradox, you know, the triune trans-rational practices we were referring to. I think that if you can have a good community of people who are sane, who are open, like this conversation, but at the same time able to discern and not take everything and, and to be patient, wait decades or lifetimes, whatever it is we have to do, to remain living the question, don't collapse it, and then art. The biggest big thing for me right at the core of it all is art. Art is the way saved my life over and over. I mean that in the most literal sense. I would be dead if I was not able to make art out of all of this and everything that preceded this even in my life. Art has just saved me over and over again. Why is that? Because every time you bump up against something unresolvable, which is set in this binary tension of opposites, like... I'm this and that thing is that and I'm in here and that's an other or this doesn't resolve to my rational conception of reality. Whatever the insurmountable obstacle is in my human experience, the only thing that's been reliably able to metabolize it and dissolve it or transmute it has been art. I mean, not even meditation has been able to do that for me reliably, especially with depression. I mean, that's another thing that's been super strong in my life as well. There's been many periods with this paranormal stuff where I got really depressed and started to feel like, man, I'm a fucking freak and I'm losing it. And I live in a world that is incompatible with this. And art was the way, whether it was a painting or a piece of music or a manuscript, whether I created it or someone else did. Every time it got me through that, it dissolved the block, put me into a new place and saved my life. Wow. Mm. How about you two? I can relate. Yeah. One of the recurring themes in our conversation here on Weird Studies has been the uh, objective value or objective power of art. And while you were telling your story, I was thinking about, like, why would this mantis want you to make this movie? What a weird thing. Like, is this like an alien producer? (laughs) 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 So, uh, you know, Phil, we keep saying, like, when you make... When the new emerges in a work of art, when the new can only emerge in a work of art, whether that work of art is a, a film or a symphony or a song or a gesture on the street or a moment of creative engagement in life, that's just art you can't market, but it's still art. When, right. when those real creative surges occur, the universe is different than it was. It's kind of in these moments, I would argue at least, or at least that's what I was trying to get out in my book, the idea of the rift. The rifts are those moments in life where the new reveals itself. And not only is it something new coming out of nothing, but each new thing coming out of nothing shows us that the whole universe is a new thing coming out of nothing. Mm. That's the line I love from the book of Revelation, behold, I make all things new. It's like, once you have one new thing, everything is new again. And you can yeah. you can see that when you see a movie that really kind of blows your mind and you walk out on the street. I remember when I saw Terrence Malick's Tree of Life. 
I love that movie. I just thought yeah. it was like music. And I walked out of the theater. It was the TIFF Lightbox in Toronto, and the whole city had been transfigured. I put that in mm. the book. Like it's just there's something so magical about these surges of creativity that we call art, these surges of creation really that we call art, that I'm not surprised that some entities who are interested, let's say, in the ongoing process of autopoiesis or the self-creation of the universe would call upon certain individuals to participate in this, this bringing forth of the new. You could see how there's something much deeper than, I mean, yes, it is aesthetic fundamentally, but aesthetic in a almost kind of religious or spiritual sense that this is the act of creation that's unfolding itself through our perception of time. I don't know. There's something about that. I mean, one of the texts we're going to explore soon on Weird Studies is Plato's Timaeus. And I find that Timaeus is very much about that, about the self-creation of the universe. I don't know. That's maybe one reason why an alien praying mantis would be interested in Stuart Davis's next art project, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I... Again without attempting to interpret or collapse it too much and trying to let it live with the oxygen it carries. But I agree, and my sense is that whatever this entity is, it cares less about whether the film gets made or gets made a particular way. It cares more or derives more from the energy itself which is present and occasioned in the entire undertaking. I, if I were to visualize it, it's more like it wants to interpenetrate with the creative fields that are created in sympathetic resonance between me and other human beings and perhaps the mantis entity and its mm -hmm. cohorts. The field itself is the rich, rich item of concern and the particulars in how that refracts and reifies out in the reality is probably less or is, is a more peripheral interest to it. Right. Right. Which I'm cool with. That's fine. That's, that's yeah. great. It's like that proverb, that little anecdote that we mentioned on the MC Richards episode, Phil, of uh, mm -hmm. the, the, the great potter, the Chinese potter who tells this guy who really admires his work, he tells him that He's not interested in the pots, but in what remains when the pots are broken. That maybe, in a sense, the least important aspect of an art process is the final work. What really resonates at a higher level is the whole story of its creation, the whole process by which it came into being. All of that resonance and all of that, that field, as you referred to it, Stuart, is what's really going on in artistic creation. So I kind of like that idea. That thing, you know, whatever it is, when the pots are broken, that thing we were talking about in M.C. Richards, I feel like, I mean, getting back to something you said, Stuart, about how there's a very direct relationship between this sort of creative force and depression or the whatever it is that pulls us out of that. I feel like at times in my life where I've been getting further away from that thing, that creative life force, that thing that is left when the pots are broken, uh, those are the times of my life where I'm lowest. Mm. Um, I didn't intend to talk about any of this shit on the show today. This is like <laughs> personal disclosure hour. But I have, you know, as I've mentioned on the show, I have episodic depressive tendencies and had one of those episodes this last semester. 
and this term is finally winding down and I'm doing a lot better. And let me tell you the thing that, uh, oh God, every time I, every time I'm in this, I'm just like, oh shit, not again. And how the fuck do I get out of this? And it was just one day I was just talking to my daughter, who's also a musician, and I wanted to show her this little video of there's a Canadian experimental filmmaker named Norman McLaren who did an abstract, like a five minute film, just abstract moving spheres that he set to box F sharp minor fugue from the first book of the Well-Tempered Clavier. And I showed it to my daughter and I just found myself like profoundly moved by this music. And I haven't touched the piano in uh, such a long time. And I talked about this in the MC Richards show mm-hmm. and i just was like you know fuck it i'm gonna play that fugue <laughs> just like and started playing just i'm like i'm just playing this fugue and it's this weird little stirring of that energetic force intuitively like i want to move towards that almost like if you're cold you'd move instinctively towards warmth and light mm. you know i start playing it and now i'm like i'm well i'm gonna do the prelude <laughs> play the prelude to this fugue and now i'm gonna buy more music and i'm gonna start playing more music and it feels like coming in out of the cold sitting by a fire feeling some warmth and life returning to my frozen fingers to my limbs which isn't to say in some straightforward blunt very victorian way that uh, I'm, I'm bathing in the healing powers of art uh, but, you know, the fact that we don't permit ourselves, for the most part, we wised up postmoderns, the fact that we don't permit ourselves to imagine such things possible, uh, that art, in fact, does have this aspect of, um, that I'm trying to put into words, is unfortunate. It's not that, I mean, people are always like, yeah, but, you know, the Nazis like to listen to Schubert, blah, blah, blah. It's like, all of which is true. You can pervert and debase anything. But there is always I think the possibility of finding something in the creation of art that is uh I don't know healing redemptive completely I love the way that we have this opportunity to talk about giant praying mantises on weird studies and we end up talking about art again (laughs) and it's, (laughs) it's 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 power but I mean art is the weirdest thing of all I I would say Stuart tell me about the movie then what's going on with that do you want to talk about that yeah um well first bef- before i touch on that i just want to pick up the thread that right. phil was just on and just say that that is my experience so many times in my life and within the last few years one of the things that happened to me with depression and art was when i was sunk into an episode of feeling despair about how this is not reconcilable with normal reality and and feeling like the paranormal is this abusive mistress or just this feudal labyrinth to get lost in. I discovered the artwork of Remedios Varro and Leonora Mm. Carrington. Hmm. And Mm. and I just completely submerged myself and it did what you had just described. It did something very similar in my experience, you know, with you beginning to work on the fugue. It's like I just began to get into Remedios's paintings and that led to Leonora and I bought books and I can't explain it. I can't necessarily describe it, but something about the worlds they shared opened me up again and brought oxygen into my being and lifted me. 
lifted me and got me back out of another depressive episode. So I just completely concord with all of that. Hmm. The movies, right now, the first one in the trilogy is the main one that's being focused on. And it, it's been sitting at 50% funded for nine months. And we shot a trailer, uh, a sizzle reel to it a year ago. And the positive side of it is that a little tribe has built around this film of just amazing human beings. There's a population of people in Los Angeles that are so devoted and driven and loyal to seeing this vision realized. And as I speak right now, and and for the last month, they've just been in endless meetings trying to close the funding so that we shoot. The plan is to shoot in spring of this year in Canada, in Kamloops, right outside of Vancouver. And Basically, we're just looking for the rest of the money and have been for a long time. And it's looked like, oh, it's happening. Here it is. And then it, it's fallen apart. And just like generic show business stuff. But yeah. Don't I it's know it. been really tough hmm. for everything that the three of us are describing. You can multiply by a dozen other people whose hearts and minds and souls are so deeply invested in this. And we've all been through a series of mirages and you know, the genuine article. And it's been really tough and tricky. And, I, you know, it's one of the reasons I love your book so much, Reclaiming, uh, because it's been a continual process of returning to what's at the center of all of this and why, for instance, the producer felt with such conviction, this absolutely is the project. It's this is the one we are doing it. I will accept no other outcome than the completion of this film, which not even I have felt at all times. I'm 30 years into a show business career and I've seen all kinds of things vaporize and dissolve and just, I, I think we can all really connect with the idea of like how many artists I continually think of the Holocaust and how many brilliant, amazing, miracle artists we lost in that event alone, and then multiply by the entire history of humanity. So do mm. I feel entitled to get to make my film? No, I don't. I don't know what will happen. It seems like it's going to happen, but it might not. And I'm just trying to use it all as like a tantric opportunity to practice gratitude, whatever the situation is. And that's what I'm doing day to day. Consider subscribing to Weird Studies on iTunes, Stitcher, or another podcast service. You can also find us on Twitter. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel. Thank you for listening. Thank you.